Hi there, this is Brent Siddle. We've had a great summer season of twice weekly episodes, but we want to keep our focus on quality rather than quantity. So we'll be going back to weekly episodes from the beginning of March. From the beginning of March, God Story Podcast goes back to weekly episodes. Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast, episode 36. And today we're joined once again by Rido, Reverend Ian Reed of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand, and by our very special guest, Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. And we're going to be talking about the book of Daniel, and today we're looking at chapter one. Gentlemen, hello to you. Hello. hello. <laughs> I say hello in unison. Alistair, how, <laughs> great to have you back with us. Thank you. Who was Daniel? So Daniel was one of the exiles with the original group of exiles prior even to the 597 um, period of the exiles. He was one of the first people to go take, be taken from Judah to Babylon. So he would have been presumably from a royal or noble family, um, someone who was of high birth. And when we first meet him, he's presumably a young man, very young man, and maybe early teens. And he's someone who's being trained to operate within the Babylonian system and court. And part of the means by which Babylon is exerting some of its control upon the rulers who continue to exist in Judah at this time. Later, Judah will cease to exist. And David's or Daniel's ministry continues throughout the entirety of that long period of Babylonian domination, which is, as Jeremiah puts it, for 70 years until it is broken by the Persians. And this is a, taking place in, in the background of exile for Daniel and his friends too, isn't it? It is. And so we can see something of the larger picture of Israel's exile condensed within the experience of these four young men. And I think also some reminders of earlier stories of being away from the land. I think most notably the story of Joseph, there are many ways in which the character of Daniel reminds us of the figure of Joseph. Yeah, how does Daniel recapitulate some of the other big biblical theological themes in the Old Testament? I think when we're reading any biblical story, particularly when we've read many biblical stories before it, we'll find they're picking up elements of things that have gone before. So if you're reading the book of Revelation, you'll find this more than anything else. You're expected to have read every single other book by the time that you've reached Revelation. So it will allude to parts of Ezekiel, Zechariah, Daniel, um, Isaiah, and then all the way back to Genesis and then parts of the Gospels as well. So when you get to Daniel, you presumably read most of the Old Testament and you'll find within the book of Daniel particularly references back to the book of Genesis more than anything else. The book of Genesis and the story of the empires against which the calling of Abraham takes its, has its backdrop, um, that is really something that helps us to understand the story of Daniel, because in many ways, the story of Daniel and the story of the exile is Israel back to square one in they were called from Ur of the Chaldees, and now they're among the Chaldees again. It seems that everything has failed. The whole project of calling Abraham has come to an end. This is where its terminus lies. What is God going to do in this situation? And so in many ways, it's natural that the themes of Genesis will be particularly pronounced, and maybe especially those themes that provide 
the immediate backdrop for the story of the call of Abraham, because that is the context that we seem to be returning to at this point. Yes, in what sense is chapter one of Daniel and the book of Daniel generally about new beginnings? Yes, um, I think, first of all, we can see that there is a break for some, from something that has gone before. Daniel's being uprooted, taken from his homeland and brought to a very different place. It's the beginning of the exile more generally. This is the first small wave before the larger waves come. And it's the beginning of a period of time of Babylonian dominance. So when we think about the period of Babylonian dominance, it more or less starts around 605 BC is the Battle of Carchemish, which is um, in which Nebuchadnezzar defeats the remaining power of the Assyrians, the Egyptians and others. And at that point, it's Babylonian dominance over the region for 70 years until the time of Cyrus. And this is the sort of context within which Daniel begins. It is a time of new beginnings, and it's a time in which the foundation of how they're going to act within the realm of exile is also being set. How are they going to um, go along with the ways of the kings? They're being trained into the way of the court. Um, How are they going to put their first foot forward? And so it's very much, it's a critical moment. The decisions that they make at this point will set the course for how they will relate in the future. Yeah, in what sense is Daniel a book about the conflict between empires, God's empire and man's desire for empire? If we look at the final chapters of the book, we can see a series of visions. And those visions are very much concerned with the rise and fall of a series of empires picking up on themes, particularly from chapter two. And so there is that broader imperial frame to the message that it has. I think beyond that, though, there is a sense, even at the very beginning, that we are re-entering the world of the great empires. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 10 and 11, the empires really find their beginning in the work of people like Nimrod, who founded many of these places like Babel and Asher and these other um, key sites that would be the core of later um, empires. And what we have here is a return to the land of Shinar. The land of Shinar is the place where the Tower of Babel was built. So this is a return to that imperial world that preceded the call of Abraham. And that, I think, provides us with a sort of textual clue about what is going on in the book more generally. Because as we read through the book, I can see, I think we can see in many different ways a running theme of how the Lord relates to the great empires. In part, it's about how do the laws of empires work. Many of these laws are attempts to set up dominance um, and order of the creation and its peoples in a way that rivals the authority of the Lord himself. And so when we get to um, when we read Old Testament prophets, we'll often see a contrast between the hubristic ambition of kings and the Lord's own sovereignty. So it's not just the idols and the false gods. It's the kings and the cities that have their ambitions to be the great rulers of the world. And the Lord speaks against them. And I think that's some of the thing that what you're seeing in the case of Babylon more generally, but then the personified heart of that which is Nebuchadnezzar himself. Nebuchadnezzar is this um, king with vaunting ambition 
who does not have a sense of his own part within the purposes of the Lord, that the Lord is the one that's ordering this sequence of empires. And so the story of Daniel, I think, can be read as a replay and a sort of refraction on a much larger scale of the story of Babel. And so it picks up many of the themes that we have within that story and develops them. And if we actually look at the whole book of Daniel in terms of the story of Babel, I think we find numerous points of reference that help us to see a unity to the book, uh, a sort of message that comes through with a unified force, and then also helps us to understand some images and details that might otherwise be confusing to us. And then I think perhaps the climactic chapter would be something like chapter seven, where we see all the empires, the four beasts, and then the one that arises who has all authority and power given to him as the son of man. And so I think this is an answer to the key issue. Who is going to get the sovereignty? Who is going to be the ruler of all? And so the empires raise questions. What we see in many cases in the empires, they're struggling with their failures, struggling to overcome the failure of their attempts to order things and to control the world, and then reaching a point where we see them having to bow before the Lord in the figure of their rulers. And beyond that, I think we can also see ways in which the very structures of imperial rule are ones that are um, actually serve to dominate the people within them, even the rulers. So the laws, we can see that the laws of the Medes and the Persians, for instance, or the way in which the laws of Babylon and, and the whole structure of Babylon is one that's shaped by the king's paranoia. And so in these ways, I think we can see that the people who think that they are in charge are not actually in charge. In fact, the very means that they think that they exercise their rule by are means by which they themselves are bound. Rita, I'm going to bring you in here. Questions for Alistair? Uh, one of the big things, uh, you know, kind of I get from the beginning of Daniel is that it seems like uh, Babylon has won, you know, in the struggle between Jerusalem and, uh, and Babylon, you know, one of those themes that runs from the Tower of Babel, you know, kind of right through, isn't it? Is that if, it feels like Babylon has won, but you get this sense, uh, even in verse two, that it's, it's God that has delivered Jerusalem into the hands of Babylon. Uh, but you have, uh, um, so he's the one that's ordering that. There's no kind of mistake about that, that. That it's not that Babylon has won. It's that God has ordered it in this in this kind of way. But you also have this very uh, interesting detail. At the end of verse two, there, it's God that uh, also delivers some of the temple items, you know, into the temple of Babylon as well. What do you think that's about? Yes, I I find one of the most helpful ways of thinking about this is the way that. Um, my colleague at Theopolis, James Bajon, describes it as um, this is a sort of um, time bomb waiting to go off. We're meant the vessels of the temple are mentioned and they appear later in the book, but they appear at a pivotal moment at the moment of the downfall of Babylon. So this is the moment of the rise of Babylon, when Babylon first gets its power. And then when it's going to have its downfall, you'll see the, um, them appearing again. And when they appear again, it's in Belshazzar's feast. And it, their appearance there is ominous. It's a sign that the time of Babylon has come to an end. The Lord is going to call in their debts, as it were, and he's going to bring them down. And your point more generally, it looks like Babylon has won. It looks like Babylon has won over Judah and Israel, 
of Judah at this point. Israel has already been taken in 722 BC by the Assyrians, and now it looks like Judah has sh- is going to share their fate. But one of the messages that we have within the prophets is that the Lord is in charge of all of this. In Jeremiah, that the people should submit to Babylon because that is the Lord's purpose. He's judging them, but he is still in control. We see that again in places like Isaiah, where Isaiah says that although the Babylonians will think that they are in charge of it all, in fact, the Lord is the one that's behind all of these things. And so the people need to recognize the Lord's hand in judgment, and then he will restore them in his good time. Behind this, I think we might have some reminder of one of the most important stories of and the book of First Samuel, the Battle of Aphek. So the Ark of the Covenant is taken out as a sort of um, talismanic thing that the Israelites think they're going to win this battle against the Philistines if they have the Ark of the Covenant. It's a sort of, um, it's something that gives them control over God. As they bring that into battle, surely the Lord is going to fight with them because they have his item with them. And in fact, they get terribly defeated. Many of them are killed. Hophni and Phinehas are killed, the sons of the high priest. And then the high priest Eli dies when he hears the news. And it's just a very tragic day for the nation. It's the breakup of the entire religious system as well. So from that point onwards, you never have the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle in the same place again. It's torn apart. Even when the tabernacle is, even when the Ark of the Covenant is restored, it's not restored to the tabernacle. So it's the end of that old world. But then the Ark of the Covenant goes down, taken by the Philistines into their city, and they bring it to the Tower of Dagon as a sort of sign of their power over the God of the Israelites, because surely if they defeat the Israelites, they've defeated Yahweh, their God. And so they have this there. And in fact, Dagon is humiliated. He, first of all, is um, brought to bow down face to the ground, and then he loses his limbs um, the second time. And so what we see is something similar here. Um, And what looks like a defeat, what looks like the Lord has failed, and yet actually proves to be a time bomb. And it's one of the means by which the Lord proves his power over his foes. And of course, when we think about this, this is the pattern of the cross. Christ goes to a position where it seems he's totally at the mercy of his enemies, that they control him, that he has been defeated utterly by them. And yet in that moment of seeming defeat, he wins the great victory. Again, we have other examples in the story of Samson and things like that. What actually happens in Daniel chapter one, Alistair? So in Daniel chapter one, after the um, exile of Daniel and his friends, we have the first great test that they face. And so there are a number of tests of faithfulness within the book of Daniel. But the first great test concerns eating the king's food and how they are going to um, deal with that is, as noted before, the first step that they will take, either in the way of faithfulness or unfaithfulness. And so this very much sets the terms for what will follow next. And Daniel and his three friends here are together as a group. In later chapters, they face their challenges more alone and distinct from each other. But their presence together here, I think, is important. This is the core group of um, a larger group that 
eventually will be formed of faithful people within Babylon. And so I think we have these four characters set apart for us at this stage. We have Daniel being presented for us as a faithful servant of the Lord, someone who is willing to be loyal to the Lord, even in situations where it can be incredibly costly to him. And he gives us an example of what it looks like to be faithful in the situation of exile. And so I think it sets the terms for much of what will follow. Mm. How does the opening chapter of Daniel recapitulate, and we've talked about this a little bit already, how does the opening chapter of Daniel recapitulate some of the themes of the creation account in Genesis? Yes. So I think when we're dealing with um, these parts of scripture, often we'll see that the broad, um, the great themes of scripture are present within them. And perhaps nowhere do we find the more fundamental themes of scripture more fully and condensedly articulated than in the open, opening chapter of Genesis. As you go through the chapter, you'll see all the different furniture of the creation described, the fundamental patterns of the creation, the seven days. You'll have um, the order of day and night, the land and the sea, the waters above, waters beneath. And so in a similar way here, I think we're having the establishment of the the beginning of a book in which the establishment of a faithful servant, um, a faithful man, and humanity, as it were, within the situation of exile is being presented to us. There's food tests. There's other things like that that I think can draw upon these fundamental network, this fundamental network of images that we have within Genesis chapter one and elsewhere. So one thing I, I often suggest is that people think of some of these texts as similar to um, when you're watching a movie and you have the color of a particular screen or a particular set of images, maybe sepia toned, or you have a very blue washed image um, for some superhero movies, you'll see that quite often, or uh, trying to, they're a lot darker at the moment, for instance, lots, lot less color and the color is flattened in many superhero movies and to look more gritty or something like that. And so there's a feel that is not necessarily about the elements, but about the, the palette, as it were. And so when you're reading, for instance, the book of Jonah, the palette of the book of Jonah is very much the palette of the original creation. You've got the fundamental, the sea, the storm, the wind, the sea, the deep, um, the deep, you have the um, big fish, you have the, um, the man on the waves and all these sorts of elements. You have the sun, the burning heat, you have the gourd and other things like that. And so what you have is the sort of feel of the world of Genesis chapter one. I think in some ways that's what we get here to some extent as well. And beyond that, I think it refers to other of the earlier chapters of Genesis. I think particularly with, I mentioned the detail of the the location. We don't have Shinar mentioned that much in scripture. Um, Shinar is mentioned in chapter 11 in the connection with, in connection with the Tower of Babel in Genesis, and then it's mentioned here. And the mention here, I think, is a reminder that we are back to that context of the Tower of Babel. And so as we go through the book, we can see there are these big towers, there are these, um, this attempt to join all people together, and that will be 
many peoples, tongues, nations, and languages with the music. It will be the different structures of Babylon's order. It will be, I can think about the ways in which the hubris of Belshazzar or Nebuchadnezzar mirrors that of the temp the tower builders. And so I think what we have is just these subtle hints of texts against which we can read this text to have better sense of what's going on. So Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom then is a Bible project. Very much so. And I think if you think about the great images of the book, it becomes clearer that this is the case. So think about the great towering image that Nebuchadnezzar sees in chapter two. That is a sort of tower to heaven. Uh, we can think about the way that the great towering image that he builds in chapter three is a similar thing. Or think about the great tree that reaches up to heaven in chapter four. And then a watcher descends from heaven. And just as the Lord goes down to confuse the languages, to cut down this tree and to scatter all the people beneath it. And in its place rises a mountain um, from the stone that is cut out without hands. It expands to fill the whole earth and it joins together heaven and earth. So this struggle to join together humanity within a single imperial project is what the original Babel was about. It's also what this new Babel project of Babylon is about. So we can see part of the crisis that Nebuchadnezzar experiences is that this great statue that he's the head of, this statue of empires, is begins with this pure metal and then you have the silver, but then you have this um, mixture, mixture that goes down to this admixture that doesn't actually mix, doesn't actually hold. It ends up with iron and clay. And so there's this weakness and strength mix, mixed together. And so as you go down, what you're having is this mixture of peoples, um, these brought together by these different empires, but it's fundamentally weak as a result of its constitution. The next chapter, we have the attempt to form a statue, an image, all of gold. Now, this is Nebuchadnezzar saying, I'm not just going to be the head, I'm going to be the whole of the thing. And I'm going to bring together people of all different tribes, tongues, nations, language, and it's ridiculed by the way it's repeated. And the attempt there is a fundamentally Babelic project, this great tower that reaches up to heaven, and then this attempt to join all of humanity and the structures of Babylonian rule together under him. And when the friends of Daniel don't submit to this, he puts them into the fiery furnace in many ways that you could see that as this is where the statue originally comes from, from melting things down and bringing them into this one object, this one image that's raised up. And when these people won't submit, well, they're going to be melted down into it, but they end up resisting that. And um, the Lord delivers them from the fiery furnace. They won't be melted down and it won't be successful as this great project. The next chapters then I think bring together themes of confusion of languages the question of interpretation is there throughout the book how do you interpret these dreams and these other details how do you interpret the writing on the wall the confusion of languages this sign of judgment that is one of the ways in which I think we see the theme of Babel come to the surface again and then of course in chapter seven all the authority is given to the um, son of man who's raised up. And so this figure like the son of man 
is the one who actually gets the authority that Babel sought for itself. And so it's the failure of the Babel building project and then the success of the Lord's servant, the son of man. And then as we go through the book, it's after that point, it's the visions of those things that will lead up to the final revelation of the son of man, which we see in chapter 12. How does the book of Daniel recapitulate the seven days of creation? I'll need to give that more thought. Um, I I tend to be wary about um, some of those connections. I've not seen them so clearly myself. Some have argued for them, um, but I'm, yeah, I need to give it a bit more thought. Can we come and talk about the numbers? Why is the number five so important in Daniel chapter one? I think when we look at numbers, there are some natural things that we can, connections that we can think about. So if you think about the number five, there's one very obvious connection, which is that it's connected with your hand. It's a sign of power and strength. You can connect that with the fist, for instance. You can also connect it with the five days of creation, the or the fifth day of creation, which is the creation of the sea creatures um, and the birds. But I think that would be my tendency to think of it in terms of the um, the strength that's connected and um, with the fist. And what we see, for instance, in scripture often is five is a number that has military connotations. So Israel moves in groups of five um, when they're in military formation. Um, Certain groups are divided down into fives or fifties and things like that. So um, I think that can maybe help us at this point. What are some of the other numbers that are important in the chapter? Yes, I'll have to um, remind me of which numbers you're thinking of. Oh, any of them. Uh, I haven't made a note myself. (laughs) There aren't that many numbers in um, chapter um, one. Well, I, I should mention the significance of the four, the, the four friends too. That's significant, isn't it? Yes. So we can think about the way that there are often, there's often one and three as a key group. So we can think about Jesus and the three core disciples, or we could think about um, Job and his three friends. And so James Jordan, for instance, has suggested that we think about this as the key corners of a building. So you have the chief cornerstone and then you have other corners around which this greater edifice can arise. And so in a similar way here, the greater edifice of the community of the faithful exiles will arise with Daniel as the chief and then the three friends as the associated corners. Um, I think we could also think about periods of time and testing with the um, three years in the preparation and things like that. Mm, all of it has significance. Just before we finish this uh, podcast, Alistair, can I ask you about the structure of the book of Daniel? Is it a chiastic structure? And if so, how does a chiastic structure work? Yes, a chiastic structure is um, often described as a there and back again structure or a, or a bookended structure. So it's like bookends but lots of bookends within bookends. And as you go in towards the center, you can see the core. And with those bookends, they mirror each other. So what happens at the real, both extreme ends mirror each other, and then the ones within that mirror each other, et cetera. And the core element tends to be particularly important. I think the other thing that we can see with chiastic structures is sometimes they follow the very natural flow of a story. So I mentioned the there and back again 
example. I mean, that's connected with the story of The Hobbit, which is a natural story of going somewhere and then returning. You're back at the same point, but things are different now when you're at the same point. Home is a different sort of place because you've returned. And within scripture, you'll often see that there are these structures where there is a larger order to the story that has a beginning point and then an ending point that can map onto each other. And within that, it gives a sort of, it holds the story together. It also gives a structure where you can see certain elements that are important, certain elements that correspond. And then it can also give you a sense, just, I think one of the good examples of this, for instance, would be the story of the flood. So there's a very natural marriage between the waters rising and falling and a chiastic structure because you have the the rise you can see the numbers that correspond the 7 7 40 150 and then in the very center the lord remembers noah and then you have 150 40 7 7 etc and you have other details within the text specific words and expressions that map onto each other now i think people can easily go overboard with chiasms many chiasms are possible structures they're weak um, in particular contexts other ones are very pronounced and there's very little doubt about them so if you're looking at the story of the flood it's very clear there's a chiastic structure there if you're reading the story of genesis chapter 12 and onwards you can see a chiastic structure that's pinpointed in part by the presence of redundant features so why are we told the canaanites are in the land twice i mean we already know that fact but the fact that we're told again actually alerts us to the fact that there is a parallel. And as we go through, we can see these elements mapping onto each other. Um, Abraham ends up retracing his steps, going back to places that he has been before. And so we recognize when we see the chiasm, something more about what's going on in the text, that there is this retracing that's occurring. And that, that, that retracing, we need to compare it with the first time he visited can see it again in something like the story of Jacob, again, a very natural pattern where he goes to the house of his uncle Laban and then he returns from it. And so that there should be a parallel is quite natural. And we can also see some of the significance of events when we see that parallel. So that you know, can might think about the struggle with the angel and the way that the sun comes up and how that might be connected with the story of Bethel. Or alternatively, the division of the, the family into four different groups and the way that that might be connected with the three groups of sheep and then the fourth that arrives with Rachel last. And so those four companies of sheep, when he first meets Rachel at the waters, the well, um, is connected with that later part of the story. And so that can help us to interpret elements, to recognize important details. Now, when it comes to the book of Daniel, I think the main chiasm chiastic structure is to be found within the Aramaic sections of the book. And so the Aramaic sections of the book are those parts of the book that break from the Hebrew that we usually have within scripture um, in the Old Testament. Almost all of the Old Testament is in Hebrew, apart from some small sections in the book of Ezra and then um, in Daniel. And so in these sections, in verse, in chapters two to seven, um, there is this larger chiastic structure. So you can think chapter two maps on to chapter seven. Both are about these four kingdoms or empires that are established. And then in chapter three, 
we have the image and the test on that front and the faithfulness and being thrown into the fiery furnace. In chapter six, there's the lion's den, which is a similar sort of test, not for the three friends this time, but for Daniel. So again, with these sorts of things, we're recognizing similarities and differences. When we see the similarities, it can help us to juxtapose the stories and better to recognize the significance of the differences as well. And then in chapters four and five, at the heart of it all, we have the story of the um, we have the story of the tree, and then the story of the confusion of the language in the um, the Belshazzar's feast. And so I think those again speak to the the breaking down of Babylon, the humiliation of kings, and there are elements within those stories that more closely map onto each other. So a chiastic structure can be it can be helpful. I wouldn't. Generally, if you have a good chiastic structure, details will tend to be quite clear within the text. There will be specific expressions that are unusual and distinctive or clusters of words, things like that. The more conceptual ones I'm a bit wary of. Sometimes it will be specific details, like in the story of Noah, where you have specific numbers that map onto numbers on the other side. And it's very clear there's a chiasm there. In other cases, um, it may not be so clear. And also chiasms can be huge. I mean, we can think about chiasms that stretch um, for whole books and then chiasms that are smaller ones, such as in um, just in the particular verse where you'll have it's a natural form of speech. Even we can think about the way that someone like Winston Churchill would often use chiasm within his speech um, that um, I've taken more out of drink than drink has taken out of me. Um, something like that. Hmm. That's a chiastic structure where the it's a, re, a there and back again. It's the reversal of the first statement. Now it's on a very small scale, but when you're dealing with something like Book of Daniel, you're seeing it on a, on a larger scale. Hmm. Alistair Roberts, thank you very much for the Theopolis Institute. Rido, thoughts as we close? Uh, just got a random question. Have you tried the Dan- Have you tried the Daniel diet, Alistair? <laughs> As you try the Not yet. Diet, <laughs> seed no, it's pre- it's preferable to the John the Baptist diet. <laughs> I will not eat the bugs. <laughs> yeah. Seeds being new beginnings, I suppose. Going back to Genesis again, aren't we? Gentlemen, thank you so much. Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States, Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston, North New Zealand. We're out of time. We will speak again shortly. Thank you so much. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.